Welcome all, welcome all to podcast to podcaster. We're picking each other's brains tonight, and who better than Spill Your Guts creator and indie filmmaker, Kevin Lane. Welcome. Hey there, how are you? I cannot complain. I'm your host, Soli, and I'll be moderating this interview. So, once again, you've been all over the map. We're here to just let you talk about some of your life story, as well as give some tips and tricks on shooting the shit. <laughs> Well, my brain is ready for picking. <laughs> we, we'll, we'll try not to put it in the oven or deep fry it, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> so we got some questions from other celebs. That's right. We got podcaster Cam Scott. He was made aware of your relationship to George Romero, and he wondered if you ever heard about the proposed Living Dead films that were in the works before his passing. <laughs> yes, I, I, I was very aware george had um quite a few different projects he was sort of in various stages of development or or uh, just sort of that he was picking away at before he passed away um and george was always very um generous that way he would say uh yeah i'm working on this thing it's another zombie thing you want to check it out and he would give me a script and i would take it home and read it and then he would go, now, what did you think of this part? And it was interesting to me that George, who is this, you know, legendary, iconic filmmaker, um, you know, to my mind, and and I and I don't remember now if it was Scorsese that said it, but I remember Scorsese saying just not long before George died, pretty sure it was Scorsese that he thought he called George one of the last great American filmmakers. Ooh. Because there's, there's something so divisibly um, American about, george's films and and what they had to say and um even though george worked with a lot of european guys his films always had a lot to say about the american identity and and you know i always thought they were very uh, they were and his films were very political as well um oh totally I, I always think it's kind of a mixed blessing on some level that george isn't around today because what's going on politically these days he would lose his mind um yeah but, uh, <laughs> um but yes I, there was a couple different things that i read um i don't know how much i can say about some of those things uh one of them i remember was a um sort of a uh a road movie about a one gal who was on a motorcycle and one zombie pursuing her kind of endlessly um and it was this them trapped in this it was a very kind of uh, it had a strong comedic vibe to it it was a very unique script for george and he was pretty excited about that um i never read anything like the one that brad anderson's been announced as that he's doing that that uh uh george's um partner when he when he passed away is involved with and and I, I can't even remember what it's called they've announced it recently but brad anderson is the director they brought in and it was something george had been working on i never read that so i don't know what that is i knew about the book that came out a couple years back um i had read a bit of that um yeah i think his son published a comic or something well no there was a book that george was writing i think it's just called the living dead i think that was just the title it was a novel, like a full-length novel, and it came out a couple years ago. I can't remember now who finished it up when he died, but but it was great. Um, and George was had worked on that for quite some time. Um, nice. So there was quite a bit of stuff that he was he was uh, uh, working with me on a script. It was a horror western. George loved westerns, so um, 
we had and it was finished and then mm-hmm. george was the producer of the film and so we had casted and everything um greg nicotero was brought on to do the effects Lovely. yeah i went and cast lance henriksen was the lead actor in it d wallace was playing his wife jeffrey collins was playing his deputy we had a killer cast um and, and you described him as a mentor mr romero yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He was, he was, and a good friend. He was a, a George was a very. There's a fellow named Chris Alexander that that uh, he was the editor of Fangoria magazine. He's just all around kind of horror genre guru. He's interviewed everybody, and he was very close with George. And we often talk about how the interesting thing once you got to know George was like there was zero pretension to George Romero. He was just such a an easy guy to be around. Um, Lovely. And very generous, yeah, just always willing to, you know, once you kind of got in with George, he, he was a very loyal guy. He would he would do whatever he could to help you. I remember, like, when I was trying to get a film made and we are having a lot of trouble finding financing and stuff, he agreed to let me put his name over the title to help bring in some money and things like that. Oh, so how that's about the, that? Yeah, that's the kind of guy that George was. He was and, you know, it was crazy because he him and carpenter were my two favorite directors as a young guy and, and still are two of my favorite directors but um and having gotten to know george very well and john uh, not quite as well but i got to know john um a fair bit and uh, uh they're both great guys lo- lovely people lovely all right well so we got another question and this comes from Reverend Entertainment, which provides all your Blu-ray wants and needs, primarily for Paramount Home Entertainment and uh, Shout Factory. We got Justin, Justin Beam. Beam. Oh, yeah. Justin Beam. Yes, hey, yeah. His question's pretty simple. How do you keep being awesome? Well, <laughs> you know, that's a good question. Um, how do I keep being awesome? Um, I think, you know what it is? I think when you are, and Justin knows all about this, when you're talking about stuff that you love, it's really easy to seem excited because you always are. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I have a guest on the show, it, and this is part of what goes into the selection of choosing a guest on the show, it's always someone I'm excited to talk to. So um, <laughs> so for me early on, I on the, when I started the show i i think i was much more concerned with like well traditionally when you're doing interviews it has to be you have to keep it all about the guest but the more i did it and the more i found that um it's something mcgarris talks about when you're when you're talking with people um is maintaining a tone where it's more conversational than a formal interview and you tend to actually get a better people get more comfortable and they open up more and they give it doesn't feel scripted that's right yeah and they don't feel um like yeah that's right yeah so <laughs> i think i just try to choose people that that i that i actually really want to kind of talk to and and hear their story and hear the stories of the things they've done and um and try to have fun with it too i mean it's like you know oh, one look. thing i always say about horror films is like they're the most fun sets to be on because as soon as you take a bunch of people and you give them fake blood and they're you know they're you're staying <laughs> people are immediately gonna have fun so i just try to make sure that the conversations have that tone um and then you know uh i learned from some great guys like chris alexander and justin beam guys who who um uh, 
whose interviews I would and content I was a big fan of that that you know the 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 best way to to crack a nut sometimes is just like to be yourself and and make sure to let people see what a fan of them you are and not worry about like oh my god am I going to come across as some fanboy <laughs> as long as you're professional it's fine if they know that you're a fan of them so they pass the torch in the interview section perfect <laughs> all right i got to take someone out of the oven real fast and i'll be right back <laughs> No matter how I try to link this where up, these, where are these questions coming from? Oh, uh, I asked them on Facebook. I was just like uh, a private message. I was like, oh, uh, "Okay, uh, here's some questions I know you guys have seen or listened to these guys." <laughs> what do you That's think? Great. Right, <laughs> perfect. I appreciate personally your blunt uh, style in the interviews that you've done on Spill Your Guts podcast. But why do you think personally you're able to get all this raw emotion and uncensored answers from the people? You know, other than the casual side of things i think you know that's a that's a funny question uh i it's a it's a quality i think i have as a person that just again early on in the show i think i censored that trait of myself thinking what if i offend someone but i i sort of came to realize that um that that quality in me had had done a lot for me as a filmmaker when I was trying to get in the room with an actor I wanted to pitch a project or that my kind of, you know, lack of fear around, you know, whether someone would say no or say, you know, I'm not interested. I know I'm not. I no. <laughs> yeah, I don't fear that re like rejection isn't something that's ever been a, a huge fear of mine. I, I guess I'm especially when I was younger, I, I had a certain confidence about like, well, you know, if someone says no, like they're lost. <laughs> and, you know, uh, as I've gotten older, I think I've tried to kind of modulate that a bit more into, uh, well, I, being confident in my approach to interview just has to do with the fact that I, I don't ever ask people things um, for sensationalist reasons. It's always part of trying to get a complete narrative. And if that narrative is about their life or about a project they're involved, it's still all coming from that same place of just trying to give the listener the whole story. Um, and I don't think you can always get the whole story if you're afraid to ask occasionally difficult questions. And if a guest says, you know, uh, I'm not comfortable answering that, that's fine. But I don't think that's ever happened. At least oh, I don't spill your guts. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> you can't control what happened on any other show, but yeah. there you can say, hey, I asked you everything you wanted to know. Yeah, like, uh, you know, I've had interviews that that where people have uh, definitely gotten into some, you know, difficult parts in their lives and, you know, whether it's loss or um, addiction or whatever. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I also think that artists by their very nature um, help what part of what ha can help them process um difficult things in in their life is to explore that creatively and sometimes that that can be in the context of a uh, of an interview so oh, lovely 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 man <laughs> fearlessness it's a, it's a thing it is yeah yeah i mean you know sometimes you have an interview where uh you can tell the person is guarded or that you can tell that it's going to take longer to get them into a comfortable space and then it just becomes a thing of making sure that they're clear that it's a that they're in a safe space that i won't ask them anything or and i've done that i've i've had questions where i was like you know what i'm not going to ask this because i think it's going to upset them or make them uncomfortable so it sounded good but now they just yeah. said one statement that now would 
probably make me want to well that's that. the thing like and you know and justin beam is someone i've who i've talked with about this that thing of where you you know the interview process if you just drop a bunch of questions and then you just dive in and you don't know how to pivot or sort of you know be sort of spry about how moving with the with the flow of an of an interview or or of, of a conversation you know if someone steers it down a different path and you're like no no, no wait a minute i wanted to talk about this you can kill it you can just that person mm -hmm. will pull back because you're like at that point they they start thinking you're not really listening to me you just have a preset map here that you want me to follow yep and, and people don't talk that way so if you if you try to do that um, I think you can sort of irrevocably um, put up a roadblock between you and that guest. <laughs> yep. It does stink, especially if they still kind of insist, oh, I want to know this. I'm like, yeah. Well, I've heard that on other interviews, right? Where a person's like asking something and you can hear the guests actually creeping into their voice of like, you know, I don't want to go this route or I don't want to talk about this anymore. Or I've said as much as I want to about that subject. But I think sometimes that has to do with an interviewer having an idea of what they want to hear and then when they don't get it they're they're still obsessing over like but i wanted it to be said like this or i wanted it to go this way and when it doesn't they keep going and oh. to me that's like that's the kiss of death you, you might as well just wrap it up mm -hmm. uh it's almost as bad as the endless oz and oz and <laughs> well it's funny because one of the things you notice when you when you uh start a podcast and then you start being invited into other people's podcasts is um how many podcasts exist and i'm not trying to disparage anyone but there's a lot of podcasts that i think exist just because someone wants to sort of um they want to be the center of attention and though they have guests on they're constantly trying to make it about them and so you know i've been a guest on shows like that myself where i'm like uh, I feel like I'm just your audience. Like you, we're not really talking. This is not a discussion. You just keep bringing it back to you. Or I'm here because I'm the first one who responded to your question. <laughs> on social yeah, media. something along those lines. Yeah, and I and I think you know the the enemy of a uh, depending on the format of a show, right? I mean, there's those shows that are just kind of cinema bros that just like yak about what they think about movies, and some of those shows are fun, and I, you know, I, if they, if the people talking are interesting, then that's great, but if the premise of your show is, is that you're an interview, it's an interview space, an interview show, um, the audience isn't there to hear all about what you think, they want to hear what your yeah. guests so. Some of them are good storytellers, but some of them go on way too long with the, what have you been up to? I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah 20 minutes, well, and I'm waiting for the show you know to what? start. I, I, like, as an immediate, like, for me is where I'm just like, done, is like, uh, if I'm listening to a podcast, and it's like, um, it's just all kind of like inside jokes and like cackling about people just laughing a lot. And I'm just like, this is so boring. This is like <laughs> in a bar, eavesdropping on a table. Like this is not fun. And, and yeah. maybe that is to someone else, but not yeah. to me. It's annoying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what are some of your other favorite movies and which ones have really freaked you out for years? I know you mentioned The Fog and The Descent. Uh, but are there any other yeah. particular ones like this is top five gotta you must see to be in my collective <laughs> uh like of all time yeah you, you would recommend to anyone if it's not scary okay. just you feel like it has wonderful art direction and dark oh, okay visuals. so not necessarily horror well just may, mainly keep it horror but like just okay. a, a genre best like you're you're just like this is a must see 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, look, there's the, there's the very obvious ones like The Exorcist, Halloween, uh, Dawn of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead are both masterpieces. Day of the Dead is too. That r initial Romero trilogy, I think, is damn near flawless. Um, Evil Dead. Dead is a recurring theme here. Um, uh, but getting a little more obscure, I think. Uh, it's not even really obscure, but Night of the Hunter, I think, is a masterpiece. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think it's brilliant. It's an incredible movie. It has a wonderful, um, I mean, beyond the, how entirely terrifying Mitchum is in that movie, there's this wonderful twisted fairy tale Aesop's fably quality to that movie. These kids in this world that feels artificial, like, you know, when you when you realize how they did it all on sets, and they don't even always look realistic, the sets, and all of it works together to create this kind of hazy nightmare fuel kind of uh movie that that uh i've watched many times and always find something new in it to kind of go oh wow that's so fucking cool and sort of study and um uh, pardon my french um <laughs> Hut cemetery the mary lambert film i think is uh you know as a kid just killed me and I, I i love the book the king book too uh but but um there's something to me even though i know as an adult now when i watch that movie there's certain things about it that it maybe haven't necessarily aged as well but i still think there's a there's a there's just a, a raw terrifying quality to that to that tale that king wrote and and that and, and that the film to a great degree in my opinion captures I love the puppet masterpieces because I just think they have one wonderful sense of of fun and fantasy and magic to them. Uh, there's um, even though some of them have nudity and stuff, there's still an, a kind of a, an innocent quality to them. <laughs> They're so endearing. Um, the stop motion work by David Allen is beautiful. So a big fan of those. Um, a little more like obscure, I guess. There's a movie uh, that came out. I've actually got an episode of the show. Okay, here's a little teaser for you. Because I, I have a whole episode of the show coming out uh, about this. Um, there's a movie that came out in 2021, I want to say. It could be 22, but I think 2021, called Hunter Hunter that starred Devin Sawa and Nick Stahl. And I can't remember the gal's name. I think I saw that posted, but I didn't know what side it was streaming on. I love that movie. Love that movie. I think it, I think it was such an unsung masterpiece of a genre film. Um, the director Sean Linden is. Oh, I did hear about that. Camille Sullivan and these other yes. Canadian actors. Yeah, I've been meaning yeah. to watch it. Incredible! It's really brilliant film. Uh, really, it's actually scary. It's really smart. Gets under your skin. Beautifully directed and acted. Devin Sawa to me is like uh, uh, one of the great genre uh actors we've got i i love him i think he's fantastic um mm -hmm. so that's a movie that's really stuck to me and then this year i loved cobweb i thought it was um great full-on like just pure horror at its best i liked the last voyage of the demeanor i thought that was great um Good. i was just, one of those movies i was like i didn't think i really could find dracula unnerving at this point but that movie yeah. managed it um so Good. that's a more modern one that i'm that i'm be, and jaws can't forget jaws <laughs> perfect psycho another one. Oh man see you get me going you're in, you're in trouble uh psycho <laughs> is a movie i've seen like a hundred times and i'm still always just like blown away by the craftsmanship of that film lovely signs yeah. of the lamps <laughs> oh there you go yeah. circling around and Anthony uh, Hopkins and Science of Lambs and Jodie Foster is just like 
two of the great performances of all time in my books. Lovely. Yeah. So then, uh, going back on, uh, how, how did you, uh, have a big, uh, uh, stage, uh, career? I wouldn't say it was big. It was, but it was, it was, um, it was very formative for me. I, I started out, um, wanting to be an actor and, uh, the only way I could sort of think to kind of try that out and see if that's something I, I could really connect to was to do it on stage. So I started doing, uh, plays at a, as a kid, uh, you know, just local theater stuff. And then in high school, I, um, I started to put on write and, and direct plays at my high school. Um, but they, but they started to get very serious and I started to get very serious about them and, and, you know, tackling difficult subject matter. And, and I did one in particular that became sort of a, a weird thing. Cause it, it became so popular where I, in the town that I grew up in a place called Mississauga that, that, um, we ended up having to do multiple runs of the show because people kept coming to see it and it was a high school play. Um, and it was a, a play that I wrote and directed that was about, um, a jazz station through the decades sort of dealing with race and racism and privilege and this this wealthy son of a politician who kept trying to shut down this jazz station for a variety of reasons and i played that kind of evil politician's son um so stuff like that where where uh i learned you know the basics of directing even, even if it was on stage it's how to talk to actors i learned um, you know, when it came to writing, kind of a better sense of what works and what doesn't in terms of internalizing certain things and what things need to be said out loud. And they don't uh, tell you how to direct, you don't tell them how to act, but you yeah, give suggestions. That's right. And 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 that's where I also came to realize that I that I actually wanted to be a director and not an actor because I kept every time I was on stage. I felt like the perspective was wrong. I was like, mm, I want to be outside of the story and now I'm in it. And I don't, this isn't where I want to be. I want to be, uh, I want to put the pieces in motion and watch them go. And when you're in the thing, you're not doing that. So, no. um, um, but that also cemented to me that I wanted to make films. So I directed my first film when I was the first year out of high school. Um, it was terrible. Um, but I, I, rented lights and I had a crew and I just, you know, experimented and it was a kind of a religious horror film, like an omen kind of movie called the revelation, uh, ridiculously ambitious, terrible, terrible movie. Um, uh, like no one will ever see it. I've made sure of that. <laughs> um, but it, you know, you do stuff like that early on to learn, uh, because I had friends who went to film school and, um, I didn't want to do that. I, uh, I didn't, I'm not really a person who ever did so well in a classroom environment. I needed to, um, try things and experiment and just, you know, fail and then go, Oh, okay. That's, that doesn't work. And, um, and I made a short when I was in my early twenties that did well. I, I actually got a distributor out of this, the, the LA, I took it to the American film market short films never get distribution. This one did. And I actually made money off of it, um, which was very not typical of a short film. And right. it was like, yeah, it was like a ghost movie. It was called the Somnambulist. Um, 
And uh, that's kind of when I was uh, when I kind of started to realize how distribution worked. And that around that time, I started getting into a relationship with Anchor Bay. They no longer exist, but they used to put out a lot of the great horror content. Um, and that's sort of how my career in film began was just uh, by just like picking up. And I had a great mentor, a guy named Greg Williams, um, who worked at a company called William F. White, which is where everyone in Toronto rents their lighting and grip from. So. He got me on sets, and I got to hang out with Gus Van Zandt and some big people and then pick their oh, brain. Damn. I remember getting <laughs> onto the set of Jason X, and I was doing oh. some assistant playback stuff on that on that movie, and uh, that was a blast. I, when I saw Kane Hodder just last year <laughs> at a convention, and I went up to him and told him the story about some some of the things that happened on that set, and he was like, oh, my God, I can't, like, I can't believe you remember all of this. And I was like, dude, it was, you know... <laughs> You've been in a billion movies, but for me, I was on a Jason movie. I remember everything about it. Like, uh, uh, and Kane was uh, a great guy to just watch. I remember uh, there was a great moment on the set of Jason X where the director, um, who was a lovely guy, unfortunately, is no longer with us, but uh, he was trying to get a shot of um, Jim Isaac was his name, and he was trying to get a shot of Jason. It was just a, like a quick pickup shot of Jason coming through a hallway. And the timing of the shot with the camera wasn't working the way that Jim wanted. So Jim said to Kane, can you maybe just move a little faster? And Kane was like, what do you mean? Like, uh, and he was like, you know, not, and Kane was like, are you asking me to run? And he was like, not like a full on run, but yeah, like kind of just sort of speed walk maybe through it. And Kane, like in the most deadpan, serious face, looked at Jim and went, Jason doesn't run. Um, and I loved that because it was like Kane took that role so seriously. Um, and I thought that was pretty great. Someone's got to do it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so just getting all kinds of opinions. And at the same time, it's just like, uh, what are we doing here, guys? <laughs> well, Kane had such a strong idea of like the rules of how you portrayed Jason Voorhees. And, and he, I think he felt that he was the he had to safeguard that there was just certain things that Jason does not do canonologically, you know, in terms of the Friday 13th world, Jason doesn't run. So, um, Kane was, you know, refused to do those things. He was just like, Nope, that's not the character. Um, you know, Robert England and all, all the great guys like that, that, uh, Bruce Campbell, like they all have sort of stories of like, you know, the, I mean, for Bruce, it was like most of the time he was working with, with Raimi. And so, you know they both understood the rules of that character, but but I think for Robert and 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 Kane it was like they had a different director most of the time, and so it was a, you know they were the consistent thing, not the filmmaker. So we'll return after these messages. Hey, it's Brent Pope, the host of Breakfast with Brent Pope. You've seen me on some of your favorite TV shows, saying things like "Give it up, Jimmy. You got to sink this putt to win." On Breakfast with Brent Pope, I sit down with guests from the entertainment world, and we do it all over breakfast. Or should I say, breakfast? Every week on Breakfast, you get inside Hollywood info and tips, great breakfast wrecks and booty debates. Most of all, you get the most delightful 30 minutes of your week. So dig in. It's breakfast time. Listen at breakfast.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are found. Do you ever find yourself thinking about who would win in a fight between Goku and Superman? Hi, I'm James Gavsey, and on the Who Would Win show, me and my co-host Ray ignore anything important happening in the outside world and debate fictional battles between characters from comics, movies, and video games. We got a new show every week, and almost always am I the winner. Yeah, <laughs> not true, Ray. In the past, we've discussed such matches as... 
Captain America versus Darth Vader, Solid Snake versus the Iron Giant, classic matchups like RoboCop versus Terminator, and even the Muppets versus Sesame Street. That one was crazy. So if you're a fan of geek culture and love a spirited debate, check out the Who Would Win Show wherever you get your podcasts, or check us out at whowouldwinshow.com. Zoics. And uh, how did you get to know uh, Stuart Gordon again? Was he, I knew he was a playwright, but was it on the theater scene or elsewhere? No, I got to know Stuart. Uh, that's a funny story. Um, Stuart was a director that I was, uh, Reanimator was a movie I saw at a pretty young age that I just adored. I, I thought it had this incredible alchemy of, of humor and horror and, and just the right doses that's I find so impossibly difficult to pull off. And Stuart did it. And then as I got more into the Stuart Gordon universe and saw his films and just loved them all, uh, he became someone I was a huge fan of. So I, when I was going out to L.A. for a business trip, I managed to I was like, I want to try and see the way I got to meet most of the, the, the people that I met that were well-known people was I would just sort of find some way to track them down and contact them and say, Hey, um, I'm working on this or that. And I would love to pick your brain about it. And the thing about that was that most of the time they would say, sure. Um, you know, I guess it was just like, if you could get a hold of them. And the weird thing was Stuart had his own personal email listed on IMDB at that time. Uh I was like, it can't really be him. This is a, probably bullshit or whatever. But I emailed him, and uh, he got back to me and said, sure, I'll, why don't we meet up when you're in L.A.? So I remember me and my producing partner went and met with him at his office. And uh, and sure enough, it was really Stuart Gordon. And, uh, and he <laughs> through like a test. He he said something about, I don't remember what we were talking We were talking about Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken came up somehow and my producing partner goes oh Kevin does a really good Christopher Walken and Stuart turns to me and goes do it and I was like oh no 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 <laughs> I was like I'm way too nervous to start doing a Christopher Walken impression for you and this is before the cowbell shit and you know everybody was doing a Walken impression um I think the only person who was doing it at that time was like I don't know uh who was it who did on SNL in those early days anyway um <laughs> So I, I finally like got coast into doing it for him. And uh and he kind of sat back and he was like, Yeah, that is good. And it kind of broke the ice. And um and I gave him a script and on, on the thing I was working on, said would love to know what you think. And he a few days later he called me and said, Let's grab a coffee and I'll tell you what I think. And he didn't like it. <laughs> uh and he went through why and it was really helpful. And uh it was kind of the beginning of a of a friendship because after that he ended up helping me on a few. His wife, Carolyn Gordon, was my uh, did all the craft service for me on several projects I oh, shot shit. in Hollywood. <laughs> and uh, and his AD, Scott Senechel, brilliant AD, uh, became my AD on several things I did in in Los Angeles. So, right. um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Stuart was a really, really lovely, great guy with a wonderful sense of humor. Really, uh, could he just had he loved to just. Uh, chat movies and talk about old horror films and vincent price movies and stuff and then we talked about theater and we talked about book he was just a, a really fun um kind of uh giddy person when it came to film and and just the you know the, the things that interested him um he oh, was a, a great guy how about it you know <laughs> it's not every day you can say that and no it was cool and like i got to meet you know people like jeff combs who who became a friend and stuff through through Stuart. and uh um 
you know, I remember going to an event with Stuart and Jeffrey Combs and Toby Hooper. Joe Dante was there. It was for a screening of a movie William Malone did. And like all these, it was like a horror boys club that like every, all of the guys were there. And I got to just like go and hang out with them and just get to know them all. And Toby was the first time I met Toby. And he was just such a, he's a teddy bear. He was the nicest guy. Um, no, unfortunately, not all those guys are with us anymore. But it was a good, it was a good time in my life in terms of, uh, having great mentors around me and, and, and getting to meet some of my, my sort of genre heroes. That's lovely. And uh, when you write, you know, when you start taking notes, um, pretty much, uh, what, what do you recommend for filmmakers who are kind of in that zone now? Like, how do you spread out, you know, put, taking notes versus listening and learning? Do you mean when you're writing a screenplay? Uh, that or they're helping you on set and you know sometimes they give you that special advice and you're like shit i just forgot what they're saying right yeah i mean i think it's i think it's really important early in your career to be um curious um and and curiosity is a funny thing in that you know there's all these stupid expressions like curiosity killed the cat and i i i can't think of a dumber instinct to kill in a young person than curiosity because it's it's how you learn and how you get better is by right. asking how you you know when you start asking questions going now why does that work that way and and if you if you had done it like this what would happen then you know that's how you <laughs> learn so if you don't ask questions um and you know i think it's important if you get the opportunity to meet someone that you admire who has skills that you know you think you could learn from Try your best not to be like intimidated by them. Try mm -hmm. to, you know, it's it's great to recognize their accomplishments. But if you if you just go, oh my God, I loved this and I love that and I love that. Those aren't questions. Those in the person go, thank you, thank you. But there's nowhere to go with that. So, right. Um, you know, I think sometimes it's important too if you think you're gonna maybe have access to someone that you want to know things from. Um, write it out not that you take it out when they're there and go okay so there's but write it out for yourself and go over it a few times to you these are the things i want to know there's something in the process of putting things down that helps burn it into your head a little bit better um so that was a trick i would use sometimes but i think the key is like um early on yeah be curious you ask questions uh if you don't understand something i find the film business is an industry where most people in it are um they feel a sense of duty to pass things on and they feel a, a, a keen sense of wanting to share their journey with you. And uh, if you don't ask, you don't know what kind of pearls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot of uh, stuff going out the window and it's like, yeah, you, you kind of want to know this. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think it's the first few times you're on a set, it's overwhelming because there's so many moving parts and you're looking at all going, oh my God, this is a lot. And I mean, I think it's a little different now because when I was starting out, it was the early era of like, you know, DVD behind the scenes stuff where we got to see real detail on a really detailed level, like what a film set is like. But even those things were always like, you know, a lot of the rough edges were usually smoothed off. There was nothing in those about like how if you don't feed your crew well, the whole thing falls apart. So I think... Um, getting on sets and and you know the, the kind of the best way to do that and i think probably still is like get on some student films or, or put one together yourself and just uh you know start on a small level to see how all those moving parts add up to create something lovely and 
again you're gonna remember these stories like remember when we all met on that awful short film oh yeah, no yeah. Knew what oh, they were yeah. doing i have plenty of those yes yeah oh yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i mean i did a movie called off season it was a slasher film and uh we shot it like in the middle of nowhere in the woods and um you know you have your whole crew and cast all together for i think we had two weeks to shoot it and um you know, it was very ambitious crane shots and steady cam and all this shit in the woods. So if something breaks or isn't working, there you're not just running out to get you know a new one. Like, oh, our steady cam isn't working. Let's just run to the store and grab a new steady. Like that's not happening. If you're in Toronto or New York or wherever, like you can get something in. But when you're in the middle of nowhere, it's all you know bubblegum and popsicle sticks if something needs to get fixed. So. Um, you know, I was on this movie where we were working like 20 hour days and, uh, and you get to by day four or five, everybody's getting a bit crazy. Um, I bet. Yeah. The, the combination of the adrenaline and the lack of sleep. And for some people, marijuana or alcohol just <laughs> ends, ends up creating a certain vibe. It can be very fun and creative, but if you aren't careful, you can lose time because, you know, everybody gets too loose and you're, you're not staying efficient anymore. So, right. You're not focus so you can't yeah, very well it. yeah there was one time on on a on that shoot where i uh i was uh set up high up on this like scissor lift thing for a shot we we're gonna do and i fell asleep in this <laughs> thing and nobody everyone was so tired they forgot i'd gone up in it so i wake up like I don't know how long, 45 minutes later to everybody like screaming in the woods with flashlights. And they thought that I had, you know, fallen into the lake or something. Cause no one thought to check up in this thing where I had passed out. And so we lost like a good hour there. We're like recovered consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of times where it's like, uh, you need, need to make sure your wingmen are in the same zone as you. <laughs> Yeah, your AD is really important. Your your DP, your cinematographer, can is your really your right hand when you're shooting a film. Um, I've, you know, gotten to work like I got when I worked with Dean Cundy. I mean, you know, who who won, who who's become a close friend and, but you know, one of the legendary DPs. It was like the easiest shoot I ever had because he was just such a ridiculously uh, talented and, and experienced person and i just didn't have to worry about anything um and my ad was a genius and you know when you put the right people around you that's most of the work right no no needing to remember it's all it's all there <laughs> well i remember like when i was shooting with with dean and you know like you're familiar with dean cundy's work Yes, I, yeah. I love that cinematographer. Yeah, yeah, he's amazing. And I remember we were doing, we were shooting a project called Lineage, and there was a shot we had with um, William Sadler, the great character actor William Sadler, and uh, um, there was something about Dean set up the shot, and it was supposed to be this kind of hazy, misty shot where it was supposed to feel very nostalgic, and it was it was supposed to feel very kind of like it was maybe a dream or a memory, and so we had all these ideas about how we were going to accomplish that, and. And we get ready, and we're, Dean and I look at the monitor, and Dean sort of looked and said, well, what do you think? And I was like, it looks amazing, Dean, because it did. And Dean was like, no, no, something's missing. And I was like, that's, that's great. And so he jumps off the, because he was sitting on the dolly, and he jumps off, and he runs over, and he says, give me this game. He's talking to his crew, and he, all of a sudden, he puts up this little like, kind of gauzy piece of material over one of the lights, and it casts this kind of hazy ripple over one wall. And that chan it transformed the whole shot. And all of a sudden, a shot that was already great was epic. And I was like, that's why you're 
in a really good spot if you're able to get a Dean Cundy on your shoot. Unfortunately, there's only one, but um, right, another uh, <laughs> good DP, of course. But Dean Dean Cundy was is is and and remains to this day my favorite cinematographer of all time. Well, and it helps that you've actually gotten inside his head, and there's no. Oh yeah, and he's he's a wonderful person. He's just and he's a person who who did a lot for me in my career. He he really invested in in helping me build a career, and uh, yeah, I owe a lot to Dean Cundy. He has no business being as talented as he is, but he's no, it's ridiculous. It's nuts. You look at his filmography, and you're like, Jesus, it's like it's 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 nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. And you'll always remember these stories because it's like, well, but he brought his A game to everything, whatever it was. Well, this is it. Like, I used to have a thing with Dean to sort of like to help keep myself from losing like my composure about how excited I was to work with him. Where like he, I would say something, you know, about a, something I wanted to do with a shot, and Dean would go, well, maybe, you know, do you think that we should try this? And I would kind of jokingly go, okay, you're the Oscar nominee, not me. Like, you know, this isn't Jurassic Park, Dean. Like, I would sort of make jokes about, you know, what an iconic person he is. And he'd kind of be like, shut up. And like, you know, it was, I think, a way for me to kind of alleviate the pressure of myself, of me feeling like I'm uh, an unknown young filmmaker. You're a legend in your industry um what are you doing here <laughs> like but you know um what the hell can i do for you <laughs> yeah yeah uh you know but it's it's that thing of you know if 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 you're fortunate enough to have someone of that nature that you admire sign up to work with you you know get out of your own way of like why would you want to work with me like th that kind of modesty isn't very helpful so you kind of have to just get rid of that yeah, as long as no one's being a smart as I think everyone will get along. But I know what you mean. There's yeah. days where it's like, well, shit, what what do we do? Well, like, because if you start getting into that, you can actually kind of get in your own way, right? Like the like, mm -hmm. oh, well, why would you want to work on this? It's like the people that work you want to see some confidence in the in in the in the in the head person at the helm and as the director you're at the helm of this thing so you know if you're just like oh i'm so glad you're here like thank you so much why, why would you want to work with me like that's not that doesn't instill much confidence so um you can feel that and for me the way to deal with that to diffuse that was to sort of joke about it but but you have to be careful not to sort of get too caught up in that because like mm -hmm. Now, I remember I was shooting a shot, but it was Tom Atkins and Bill Sadler and Dee Wallace was in the next shot and she was waiting and I was looking and then Dean Cundy was shooting Tom, who he shot the fog with and Halloween and all these things with. And I was like, this is crazy that these people are all here on my shoot. But then I mean, felt very proud because it was like, well, I, I worked for this. You know, it's none of these people didn't just show up here by happenstance. I worked hard to get here. And <laughs> You have to kind of be able to step back and acknowledge your own hard work. Yep. You got to own it and be proud of it. I get annoyed when I see people just disowning stuff they worked on. It's like, come on. You know, you, yeah. Yeah. How much yeah. of that is you never were fond of it, but it was just a job versus. Well, and there are some responding. filmmakers who are really hard on themselves. And, you know, in some cases, that that's sort of almost endearing. I mean, when I hear Fincher sometimes talking about his own work, it's like, you know, I think he's just uh, that way, and um, but but you know, it, as long as it's sincere, uh, false that false modesty is is sort of annoying. <laughs> yeah, it can, it can be at times. It's just like, well, what would you do differently? 
Well, especially when it's someone who did something where you can tell that they know that it's good and they know that everyone else knows it's good. It's like, why are you doing that? <laughs> why are you surrendering? Yeah, yeah, totally. It was good enough. You know, I, I, I get it. Sometimes it can be kind of ego. I don't know why everyone hates it. And it's just like, well, just they don't. look at it. Distance yourself. I mean, I think it's funny. You look at someone like Carpenter who had so many movies that have now taken on the status of being iconic or or classics but many of them at the time of release bombed or or didn't do well and john kind of always jokes about that he was like well no one ever likes my movies when they first come out and then years later these movies all of a sudden people sort of get them and they go oh wow the movie actually was brilliant like the thing which is like an iconic classic when it came out it tanked and, and no critics liked it and it was a terribly re received movie and now it's iconic yep. right? so it's you you have to kind of you make the thing and you hope that people will connect with it but once that once it's done you have to step back as well and just now it's done and what happens after that it, to some degree is out of your hands i think mm -hmm. There's no point in trying to predict it either. It's like, well, <laughs> no. I mean, that happens all the time. You hear about, you know, some movie and everyone's going, "Oh, that's going to be a huge hit," and then it's not. So, it's you know, I remember before it was released that new Flash movie this summer. That was all the, this is the best superhero movie in, yet, and all this stuff, and then it tanked, it died a horrible death. So it's like, it, it's really and, and no, and on the same token, like who predicted that barbie was going to be like this breakaway runaway train of success that it was so <laughs> you know it, it's it's really impossible to know this if it's like if everyone who thinks they know anything doesn't know anything so you kind of also have to you know i was, used to laugh because romero would sort of joke about how when he would deal with studio execs how he would sort of i, th I think george had a very difficult time cooperating with studio execs because they ask ridiculous compromises of filmmakers oh, yeah. just, just to prove that they're the boss and george was not good with that it pissed him off endlessly so um you know he had a lot of funny anecdotes about being in the room with studio execs and just being like oh forget it this won't work never mind <laughs> like i've talked to filmmakers who are best known for infamous material and it's pretty much the same story each and every time where you're just like yeah Either way, they kind of lose because they put this. Their name is the first one of the first titles everyone sees, so they're instantly blamed. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? When a movie, uh, I don't know if it's as much like this now, but it, it used to be a sort of a thing where when the movie did really well, a lot of the time the credit went to the actors. And if a movie tanked, <laughs> director got blamed um and i think that's changed a bit now i think people are more acutely aware of what a director does and what the actors do and 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 you know we do know that one bad performance in the in the wrong role can sink a movie so um mm -hmm. um but uh it is still kind of like that if a movie's if a mo but i think directors have become much more um celebrated than they used to be and i think people are much more aware of what their job is um i think it, that's that balance is a little off i think writers don't get enough credit i don't think dps get enough credit i don't think ad's get enough credit but they really don't hopefully they're often more often than not the ones who are reporting who's late and is this director going to work out because they're not following the producer's orders yeah. on oh, your I show. Mean, i've been on sh on shoots uh, you know i won't say what they were but i've been on shoots where i was like 
this director is driving this thing into the ground and and the movie finished and it wasn't too bad because the DP and the AD pulled together and with the producers and helped make sure that the movie got done. In a, in, right. You know, and then the everyone next. wonders, why were they so bad on these next five well, movies? Well, the thing is, is like the direct, that director still gets the credit, right? When you're like, you know, it wasn't Bastard. really. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, totally. You know, and you'll never hear that guy go, well, actually, it was the DP and the AD who pulled this thing together. I was I was out to lunch. Like, you never hear that, so. Yeah, I, I hope it can change. And everyone can kind of just call. I mean, much like we've seen with firearms on set, I hope the minute someone does something on professional, someone can shout that without seeming like they're talking shit. Yeah, I think there's a lot that is changing. I mean, you know, we're seeing more women given the opportunity to... That was ridiculous, too, how they would cover up for a predator. Oh, well. Well, that and I just think also just the lack there. I mean, there there is there's so many great female filmmakers that weren't given opportunities because it was such a boys club. And I think, you know, there's still work to do there. But but it's I do think that it is changing. Um, and, uh, and I think that's very exciting. I think it's great to have different voices, whether that's, you know, race or gender or whatever. I, I, I think film should be, you know, this potpourri of different voices. And I, and if all the voices are the same type of person, that's pretty friggin' boring. Yeah. You gotta get some new blood in there. And yeah, if we're going to add some social and political commentary, you got to remind everyone that's part of the story. We're not trying to be well, heavy handed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why, like, you know, it's funny. I see like Martin Scorsese will say something about the new Marvel movie. And then people go like, why is Scorsese being an old grouch? Like, just be quiet. And I'm just like, well, of course, Martin Scorsese doesn't get these movies because it's, it's a completely alien way to make movies than, than than the way he ever has. He didn't come up in a he came up in the, the time of like avant garde, like very real, like New York cinema and stuff. Not it's, this, you know. Well, and on your earlier point, it's really ridiculous because those are perfect examples of made by committee movies, like the hundred percent director. I'm, not, I'm not a superhero movie guy. Like my favorite super a- movies are like the Burton ones where it's like, you know, they're wonderfully Burton esque superhero movies. Like I always loved in Batman returns that he just made up a villain with the walk-in character. There you go. Were you ever in the never- blade? Yeah, and they, uh, Blade was great. Like I, j- I, but I don't think they would ever let a director of a Marvel movie now just create a bad guy. He'd have to That's be. Why Scott Derrickson left? He was like, uh... yeah. I think it was Edgar Wright who said uh, that he was interested in making a Marvel movie, but they weren't interested in making an Edgar Wright movie. And I was like, that's that's the problem there, to me at least. Oh, totally. Uh, I'm sure you might have heard of some of the key Jim Henson puppeteers who left the company recently just because Disney was pretty much giving them a duly noted. And it's like. It, yeah. well, that, but that goes for anybody. The minute you are just being told, hey, you know, I mean, I, I was devastated when not only the day Stan Winston passed away, but when Rick Baker retired. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. So Rick Baker's retirement was like, oh, Legends, you're telling yeah. me no one had his back? Well, it's just crazy, right? Because, it, the, the, and again, these are guys who came from a very tactile uh, type of filmmaking where a lot of it was really kind of, you know, that they made that stuff. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like just all sort of put together by 30 people. And they're and, nice guys. So you can't say they're well, ego headed or not no, saying no. the right thing at the right time. I've, I've never met a guy that worked in the effects side of things that wasn't cool. They're always the coolest guys. Greg Nicotero was like the fucking. Sorry. Savinia was very rude to me. I don't know. <laughs> he was rude to you? 
Oh yeah, uh, I would. Well, I had heard that he's no nice to women, but doesn't is very disinterested. Yeah, yeah. And I was one of those where I'm like, I kind of want my forty bucks back. If you don't want yeah. to talk. Well, you know, maybe there's an exception to my rule about uh, makeup affects people. But so. yes, most of them. Uh, <laughs> I pretty much everyone's been nice. It's really only been certain directors on the day or uh, the extra coordinators or. Uh, uh, the wardrobe <laughs> well you know you're gonna meet you know grumpy people or nasty people in any facet of industry it's it's just unfortunately yeah you know, that's the way it is and so i just think it's weird that in in show business that if someone's that way within reasonable context i'm not talking about if they're hitting people or something right like right that. i, I you know, yeah, just... someone, will meet their, someone will meet a celebrity in the street or at a restaurant and say oh they weren't nice to me and i'm like well maybe they were having a shitty day. Like, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't make them a bad person. It just, it's unfortunate you didn't have a nice interaction with, and I've seen that. There's been people I've met where I'll say to someone else, like, oh, I love them. They were so great. And that person was like, really? I met them at this thing and they were really cold and distant. I'm like, well, you know, maybe they were exhausted. Maybe uh, they uh, were hungry. Maybe they had gotten to a fight with their significant other. Like, they're people. So you have to give it that that context of, we see these people in, in movies and we and there's a tendency to sort of <laughs> bestow upon them some other, you know, beyond basic human nature stuff, but they they actually are just people. Absolutely. <laughs> it's very it's very telling. Yeah. Yeah, so we kept to here and we we've gone to town. Uh let's uh, let's go into the tips and tricks before we let you go. Uh so sure. uh uh, you know, obviously everyone kind of has their own personal checklist when they're getting attached to a project. You know, is this person giving me maybe answers? And there's yes, there's everything else. Do they have a shot list or uh, storyboards? Uh, are they open to, you know, notes? Or are they just kind of in their own little head and not letting people know what's going on? Uh, but what are your main requirements for any movie set? Like for pre like when prepping for a shoot? Mm-hmm. And you're just making sure they're serious versus going to probably... Yeah, I mean, I think pre-production meetings are really crucial where you sit down with your team and you're figuring out your days and, you're, you know, your schedule is crucial. So having a good AD, again, super important because, you know, a bad schedule can kill a production really quickly. Um, I think uh, shot lists uh, depends on the what you're shooting. I mean, it depends on what it is. Some directors can't function without them. Some don't use them at all. Some use them, you know, for a complicated sequence, but not for others. I'm kind of in the middle. I'll do them for something that's complex, um, where I have a lot of coverage to get because I have a very specific... But I think if you get handcuffed to a shot list, sometimes you could miss out on things that the actors might be bringing to the table that you hadn't accounted for or an idea that, it, you know, anyone can have a good idea. So listening to anyone in your crew or on your team that has one is always wise because they might um, come up with something that you didn't think of that works out great. So, um, you know, I, I, shot lists, uh, yeah, I mean, it's storyboards like I only ever use um, if it's a complicated effect sequence. Uh, oh you know, where you're not, you don't really have the luxury of doing many takes because it's, you know, you're... Or a shot script where you're at least describing... Yeah, like, you know, <laughs> if you have a stunt or if it, there's a lot of gore effects and it's like, well, every time we do this, it's going to cost us a bunch of money and time to reset it. Like, it's an hour every time we have to reset this effect. 
you know, a shot list is or a storyboard is smart because that way your whole team knows exactly what you're doing. But um, uh, but otherwise, I think it's good to be kind of nimble and, and be ready to because if you get into a you know I've seen directors do this. You get into a, a situation where you you don't have as much time as you thought you were gonna have. In fact, that's almost always the case. And you're going, well, what am I going to do? You know, these I need these five shots. And your AD is going, we've got time for two of them. And if you can't pivot and, and adjust and improvise, you're in trouble. So mm-hmm. uh, I think not being rigid in that way is always smart. Um, and listen, like, I think the biggest one is listen to your team. Like, mm-hmm. you know, your AD and your, your DP and your production manager, these people, you know, if you get good ones have a lot to offer um so if you get hung up on it you know it's got to be everything's got to be my way like uh you're an idiot yep um yeah i really appreciate the indie film you were on uh when a tree falls it kind of gave me a very gritty 70s grindhouse kind of look yeah phil career a great director uh old friend of mine yeah yeah that was a that was a fun thing to do yeah it's on Tubi. <laughs> it is, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was a fun show. It was uh I remember they 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 called me. Um I had shot that opening sequence as a, that you saw me in the, the beginning of the movie where I play a really horrible guy. Um, <laughs> and uh they wanted to bring me back to do um they wanted to show my character's death because in that movie I die off screen. And so they decided, well, I know, I think we're beyond going to hate this guy so much. We need to see him get killed. But I had already flown out to LA where I was living at that time. And this movie was shot here in Canada. And they said, we need you to come back. We want to do, we want to show this. And I was like, well, how do you want to do it? And they're like, we're going to have this thing where, you know, you're going to be hanging from a tree. And I was like, nope. And the director was like, what, why? And I was like, I know how miserable and uncomfortable that will be physically. I don't want to do it. (laughs) I was already at that point where like acting to me at that point had become a thing where like it was, you know, I only did it in that scenario because it was a friend of mine's project and he, he really wanted me to do that role. I'm not sure what that means based on who that character was, but anyway, there was um, plenty of other off screen deaths. So it really wouldn't have been needed. Yeah. It was just the thing where I was like, I'm not going to fly back from LA to like sit in the, cause it it was like winter. And I was like, this is going to be so unpleasant. And I was just like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to do it. (laughs) <laughs> like so i didn't <laughs> but uh, I can't yeah, blame it, was fun, I, it was a cool it was a cool little movie i was happy with it when i saw the finished project hey uh once again stick to your guns that's what we're learning here yep yep there's a theme <laughs> if only just so you don't end up freezing your ass off in the middle of winter uh, hanging from a tree yeah <laughs> big ass tree yeah don't want that all right so once again was a delight here and you be safe out there. Thank you so much, man. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate right. it. Godspeed. Be good. <laughs> Bye-bye. Follow us on the web on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The podcast is available on Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Anchor, Apple, and anywhere else podcasts are available. Feel free to review our show and leave comments on any of those sites. Thanks a million for listening. It's a jacked up.